Oral Histories of the National Railway Museum. The National Railway Museum Oral History Podcast. We hope you enjoy this final part of Helen Hill's story as she speaks with Bob Sampson and Frank Hussey about her life in the rail industry. The Freightlink times were probably some of the best times I've had in the rail because it was just so exciting and everyone was enthusiastic. Did you get worried though when obviously it was approaching being put on the market? Well, I think when it went into voluntary receivership, that was quite a worrying time. Yeah. Because, you know, there was some concern that banks and super funds were going to buy it, Mm. which is what they ended up doing with GWA. But Tony said to me, you know, the best thing that could actually happen is if GWA bought the business. But I remember when they did, Malcolm Kinnaird actually came around and spoke to everyone in the office. You know, we all got a letter of thanks and, you know, how grateful he was for people that put in all the hard yards for Mm. the last seven years and... I mean, he was a crusty old fellow, Malcolm Kinnaird, but, you know, I, I actually quite enjoyed the times that we had were really good. And, you know, he was so enthusiastic about the mm. business as well. But when that line first opened and we had the big fanfare at the Islington Freight Terminal mm. and they put the container on the wrong way and they had to bloody take the box off and turn it. But that train was basically half empty. Yeah. But some of the really exciting stuff with the Darwin line was the army movements that we did. Yeah. It was always envisaged that that would be part of the national... Defence strategies. Defence strategies, yeah, that's yeah. right. One of the reasons for building the line. You know, when the Abrams did their first trip up there, God, there was every train buff and every uh, army buff in the yeah, world yeah. out taking photos of that. I mm. mean, They only just fitted on too, didn't they? They, they did. <laughs> they only just fitted on the Abrams. I mean, we're talking about... I reckon we might have slowed them down to 60 k's. Yeah. Did they overhang on both sides of the flats? <laughs> they did, yeah. Uh, yeah, the freight link times were good when it transitioned to GWA. Most of us went across to GWA, but also a couple of the GWA long-term people were then made redundant. But the people in that business knew what they were doing in so far as the intrastate stuff went. But intermodally, a lot of guys didn't really know much about the intermodal side of the business. And that really became the focus, as I said before, for the Yanks. And then when the ore started coming on and there was Butu Creek and then there was Union Reef, it actually became quite a busy line. Mm. And then, of course, when Southern Iron came on from Wyala to Peculiar Knob, I mean, that was a real big deal when those services Mm. came on. Mm. And then, of course, when the ass dropped out of the iron ore business Mm. and GWA spent shitloads of money yes. on buying the locos for the Southern Iron business. Well, it's just what I did because now, of course, they're back running oh, the train absolutely. again. <laughs> that's right. The iron ore price. That's right. And also Cairn Hill, Prominent Hill, they're mm. pretty big business. Mm. But Carapatina won't be using rail, they'll be roading, I think. Because that goes through the Woomera protected zone, there are some real issues around that. And one of the other really interesting things that I got to do with Paul Hollett, we used to meet with the guys from Edinburgh every six months because there were times when the track would be closed because of the testing that they were doing. So they used to come to Dry Creek and, you know, they invited us out there. So Rick Barr and Paul Hollett and myself went out to the Edinburgh Air Base and they, you know, took us around for the whole tour. We saw, you know, the old F-A-18 in the hangar. It took us up into one of the fighter jets. 
you know, it was really good stuff. And I thought, how many people get to do this sort of stuff? You know, like, how many people get to ride at the front of a locomotive? How many people oh, get right. up to, you know, yeah. the Air Force Base? And yeah. um, You've had a great variety in your life. Oh, it's, <laughs> you know, and I do think about that, you know. It's, yeah. I've been so lucky to be involved in some of those, mm. those things that other people would kill for. Absolutely. But, you know, there were hard times as well, you know. I mean, Edith River was probably one of the... Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Absolute bloody disaster. Absolutely. Could have been but worse. The next train planned through there was the GAM. And yeah. they actually mm-hmm. wanted to be the first train over because, you know, Brian Duffy. Yes. Brian yeah. Duffy was... Yes. Uh, you know, whenever there's a derailment or anything that delayed any of the passenger services, oh, Brian, Brian was... Oh, he was a hard man to deal with sometimes. Yes. But, but imagine if there'd been crew travelling in the crew van. Well, and that the whole thing, because... We were getting a lot of customer pressure, I guess you'd say, to open that line. And the communication hadn't been good because the police actually knew that Edith River had flooded over the highway. But the police never thought to ring the rail, as they used to call it. And there was a woman stranded in her car. The police had to go and rescue her. And so... The railway line's over here, mm. and the highway's over here. Mm. And the first time the cops really thought about, oh, shit, we should have told the rail about this, was when they could hear the loco coming, because you come around a bit of a bend, mm. coming into mm. Edith River, mm. and it was all over. God. And it was just fortunate that because the line had been closed, you know, because of the heavy rainfall, the Adelaide crew were resting in a motel in Catherine Mm. and a Darwin crew had driven down from Darwin to bring that train from Catherine back up to Darwin and then they were going to bring the train back to Catherine and then the Adelaide crew would get back on. Mm. And, of course, that never happened. Mm. But the pressure from GSR to let the GAN be the first train through... And I said, no, I think we'd better put a freighter over there first just to, you know, get a bit of a feel for the lay of the land Mm. before we put a passenger over it. Mm. So that actually could have been a passenger train. Multiple drownings. That could have been the GAN that went over first. Mm. That's an interesting piece of history, Helen. But even that crew van that went down... Oh, absolutely. I mean, the poor old crew would have drowned if they were in there anyway. Absolutely, no question. And that was Jerry Hayes. Oh, Jerry Hayes was one of the guys resting in the coach. Mm. And I remember he came into my office when they all got back to Adelaide and he goes, oh, shit, we were lucky. And I said, I'm the happiest person in the world to see you today, Jerry. Mm. I said, because things could have been really different. Mm. He said, all that stuff was in the crew coach. And I said, so let me guess, you had a couple of Cartier watches, you had a a couple of suits. And he said, no, no, we didn't have any of that stuff. And I said, are you sure? I said, are you sure you don't want to think about that? Even McSell, who was still driving in those days, he was really down in the dumps for a fair while. But he knows it could have been him in the bloody crew. It could have been him. It could have been anyone. It could have been the 300 passengers on the gang. I know. It's scary stuff. It was really scary stuff. Mm. But there was no monitoring in place. The weather, like the cops knew, and they admitted afterwards that, you know, that they kind of thought afterwards, well, yeah, shit, if the 
if the highway was washed mm. away, then, you know. Rail's never high on the police no, agenda. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> but we did develop some good relationships oh, with the sure. emergency services after that. But, of yeah. course, it was all too late, yeah. you know, by that stage. And I remember I got the phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning, I think it was the two days after Christmas, and John Surface was a train controller and he rang me. Mm. And he said, oh, the crew on AD1 have just reported that they've gone over the bridge and they can't see the back of their train. Mm. And the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I said, I'll be there in half an hour. And I just got up, got dressed and went straight down to Dry Creek. And then when I got there and was talking to the controllers, it became obvious that this was a really big shit item. Mm. And I rang Bert Eastope. I'd actually tried to ring Ian, but he wasn't answering his phone. So I rang Bert and Bert was on his way to Melbourne. Mm. And he said to me, how big do you think this is? And I said, I said, this is going to be really big, Bert. And he turned around and drove back to Adelaide and he spent the day in Dry Creek with me. Mm. And I'll never forget that because someone else could have done that but didn't but Bert was the guy that turned around and came back and spent the day in Dry Creek yeah. and I've had a lot of respect for him for very doing, dear friend of mine for doing that because there was big problems in Darwin you know when PN left and mm. some of the driver coordinators all wanted to be king of the castle and mm. you know Scott Key left because it was just 24-7 and it was really demanding so mm. Ian said to a few of us we need to sort this situation out in Darwin he said I'm sick of all these DCs wanting to bloody run the joint he said I need someone with balls to get up there and sort them out mm. he looks at me and he says so you're going <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really sure how to take that but <laughs> <laughs> and so that was in the November and then they advertised for the job and, you know, Shane Hennessy got the job up there and I was supposed to come back to Adelaide. And so I went up to Darwin supposedly, you know, for six weeks until, you know, they tried to sort something out. And then Edith River happened. So then I ended up staying up there for three mm. and a bit months until the, the track was opened again. Mm. So I was then commuting between Darwin and Catherine. So mm. I'd spend, you know, half of the week in Darwin, half of the week in Catherine, mm. driving backwards and forwards and walking the train and mm. talking to customers. And we established a really good terminal in Catherine. Mm. And it became quite seamless for the customers after a while. Mm. But I remember Paul Astley was the finance guy at Freightlink. And I'd ring him up and say, oh, Paul, we need to have this talk. And he'd go, how much money do you want to spend now? So oh, we just need to do something with the pad here at Catherine. Oh, okay, I'll see what I can do and then you know, come back. But not many options, that's the whole that's problem. That's right. There wasn't many options. No. But, you know, Catherine was a bit of a success story in the yeah. end, you know, because yeah. we still kept the freight moving and yeah. there was a lot of road trains, of course, on the road between Catherine and Darwin. But, mm. you know, we still were able to service that market mm. and that was really important. Mm. You know, a lot of things have been put in place since then you know the weather monitoring thing you know yeah. where we, we implemented the yep. and you know that became ARTC actually had discussions with us about mm. you know how they could implement yeah. that across their business as well sure that took a lot of work sure and then setting up the weather monitoring with the EWN we used to call it and mm -hmm. the early warning network and so I was the convener of that and so you know we'd been monitoring the weather all the time and particularly in cyclone season you know, in the dry period, you never really had to 
think too much about what the weather reports were. But in the wet season, it was 24-7. I mean, the biggest thing was Edith River wasn't really impacted by the cyclone. There was the monsoonal activity that occurred Mm. after that that Mm. really caused the problems. And after that, you know, Tom Hampton, who was the engineer on Freightlink and GWA, he was so well respected in the industry after that. And Mm. I know after there was a big derailment or the bridges were washed away on the east coast, I think, you know, Tom's experience and knowledge was Mm. keenly sought by ARTC after that. And for me, I think one of the proudest things that I take out of this is the younger guys that came into the business and being able to mentor those guys yeah to me that's some of the yeah, no, my no, best achievements yeah, i think is yeah. you but know, that's also because you respect the same as i do what we got that's from, right from older yeah, people yeah. when we were early in the game yeah. well when we when kingsley martin was doing a lot of consultancy work and we went out to muckety yeah. Kingsley and I, you know, Muckety's in the middle of nowhere, basically. Yeah. We went out there and Mick Searle was the driver on one of those trains. So we went up and we chatted to drivers. I remember Mick Searle coming up to Kingsley and saying, Kingsley, I haven't seen you for years. <laughs> and, you know, Mick's a bit of an out-there character. You know, he's got the yeah. earrings with the bloody yeah. big dangly yeah. thing. Tony Yeah. It was really good, but I remember that so much time Kingsley spent with me talking about the business and the operational side of it but for me the best thing Kingsley when we're up there and you know we'd finished and you know we're up at four o'clock in the morning because there was complaints about the traffic in Alice Springs so Bird Eastape said to me I want you to start recording all of this what time the trains are going through how much impact it's having so Kingsley and I are up there friggin four o'clock in the morning doing surveys (laughs) bloody traffic and then we went up to Manguri when they put the fuel GWA put the fuel facilities at Manguri Mm. you know so again we're bloody four o'clock in the morning talking to the drivers about how to use the fuel pump Mm. and all the rest of it out there but Kingsley said to me I'm so proud of you mate I'll never forget that. I oh, know. Mm. That's good. And so then I took, you know, some of the young guys that came into Freightlink, you know, I took them yep. out to Manguri and, and I remember after I got sick and, you know, Rick sort of had to, Rick Barron had to yep. sort of get really thrown into the deep end and, um, you know, he used to come and see me when I was in hospital all the time. And I said to him one day, I'm just so proud of you, the way you've picked everything up. Because mm. I know how much it meant to me when Kingsley said that to me. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, because... Yeah. Yeah. You don't get a lot of that from people sometimes. And some of those people don't exist anymore. Like people come into a business and they're there for two years and they're on to the next biggest thing. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. And there's no real mentoring. No, we look back fondly at those days. That's why we like to share some of these things in these oral histories. Yeah. Mm. Very good, Helen. Very good. A a very good 45 years. And I, look, I was a bit sad that, it, you know, I had to retire when I did because I, I had actually planned that I was going to retire when I was 64. Right. And like I'd always said to the guys in, in my team that for the last 12 months that I was working, I wouldn't actually be doing any work. They'd be doing all the work. Yes. And I would just be there to... But you'd be the help desk to them, though, wouldn't That's you? right. That's, and that was the whole plan, that, yeah. you know, they would... They would run with the thing, and I would just be there to mentor and encourage. Because there's a lot of things that happen in the business 
that people scratch their heads and go, Of course. Shit, this has never happened before. Yeah. Well, I, yes, but it has. But, you know, there was still often things that happen and you think, shit. Yeah. And anyone that used to come in new into the team, I'd always say, you just need to remember that today isn't going to be the same as yesterday mm. and tomorrow won't be the same as today. No. So you've got to be able to roll with the punches, be adaptable and think, oh, well, I'm doing this today, but tomorrow morning it's all going to turn to custard because I've come <laughs> in and there's been a drama. Yeah. So, it's so true. But I still wish there was more women in the industry mm. because we just can't seem to attract non-traditional females. And I think you'll find, though, particularly in the track infrastructure yes. area, there's definitely been a big change. Absolutely. I reckon in the last five years, yep. definitely a change. Certainly in the engineering and, like yeah. I say, the track side of things. Yep. But operationally, mm. we still don't seem to be able to attract women into those sort of roles. But I think it's the industry itself. And there's more female drivers out there as well. Yeah, I mean, the right. Pilbara is really leading. With, they've got a lot of female drivers yeah. out yeah. there. Well, it's been marvellous. Thanks very much, Helen. And yeah, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this oral history podcast from the National Railway Museum.